I'm a traveler far from home I get lost but I press on cause there's a mansion in streets of gold where I belong Yes, there's a day coming soon when the old will be made new and heaven's glory shines like the morning before our eyes. When we all see Jesus, when we all see Jesus, no more sickness, no more madness, no more pain. When we all see Jesus face to face, then we will sing with angel voices. There will be Won't that be a day? You take your uh, Bible and turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. And while you're turning, just let me give you this encouragement. The most important thing you could ever do with your life is to place all of your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It's not by any membership it's not by any work it's not by any amount of giving it's not by any amount of suffering or toiling or striving that you can do for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself it's a gift of God so I would encourage you today if you've never made Christ your personal savior that you would do that today the Bible says that he's faithful and that all who call upon his name will be saved. While you're there in Ezra chapter 4, I want to share with you a little bit this morning. And uh, somebody said to me before uh, 
after the last service, somebody said, you're a little long-winded this morning. And uh, my response to her, and she's my blessed mother, by the way, was, uh, it's going to be worse than the second service, buckle up. She said, really? So, uh, listen, I'm not, I'm not here to be long-winded today. Uh, it's a little different for me today. In the last 10 years of pastoring this church, there's not been any time that I can remember that I got in the pulpit that I wasn't rock solid, 110% sure exactly what my purpose for the day was. And I can't say that today. I want to share with you what the Lord shared with me this week. It may not be earth shattering or groundbreaking for you. It wasn't for me either. It was more like a gut punch. And a call to reality. I, as I prepare to share this, I want you to know our church is not under any particular attack apart from that same attack every other Christian, Christ-like movement is under. We have no financial problems. We do not have body problems. There's nobody within the church and to my knowledge, that are arguing with one another or disappointed. There's nobody under any particular attack. As far as I could say, if one of my friends uh, in the ministry said to me, hey, brother, how's your church going? It would be all glowing, uh, praising type words because that's where I believe we are. But I also believe that the pattern shown in the passage that I want to read this morning is active. I believe it is evident. I believe it is reoccurring. And I believe that it happens at a personal level as much as it does at a corporate level. And because of that, the corporate level is affected. And so when I'm preaching this morning, don't be reading into it. Uh, what I want you to read into it is, man, that's truth. How has that affected my life? Uh, if, if I were to, uh, and I know you hear preachers say this all the time, I'm being sincere when I say this, if I were to talk about one of my favorite periods of scripture to read, it would be this particular period. Now, if I were to talk about my favorite gospel, it'd be the book of John. If I were to talk about my favorite epistle, it'd be the book of Hebrews. Uh, so those things are legitimate, sincere statements. When I think about a period of Israel's history, I don't glean as much from David's conquering and Solomon's victories and successes as I do the post-exilic period. That means the time after the exile, after they have served their 70 years of captivity, the bulk of those under the Babylonian Empire, and they were released to go back. It is specifically... Uh, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, uh, and then for prophets, you would look at Zechariah and Haggai. And if you want to pull the end of it together, Malachi. The reason that period is appealing to me is because it is basically where we live today. Not, uh, not evident in victory, but victory is there. You just can't completely see it. These books describe that period of time. If, if we were to talk about uh, what was uh, the, the state of, uh, the condition of, the, the moral, uh, not moral as much as, as the, the accomplishment attitude of Israel during that time, it's interesting because it's a bit of a paradox. They were released by Cyrus. You can read this uh, if you'd like to last 10 or 12 verses of 2 Chronicles and the first 4 or 5 verses of Ezra 1 kind of overlap and, and, and they kind of talk about uh, how Cyrus, uh, a Persian king, determined to release them, send them back to their homeland. And, and when he did it, uh, it was complete freedom to anybody that wanted to go. As many families as wanted to go could go. They could take all of their livestock. They could take all of their worldly possessions. In fact, there was a free will offering taken up to send with them so that 
uh, so those folks that had guilty consciences could give them something to go if they didn't want to go themselves. And, and there was a decree from the king. Uh, so they, they kind of went with some power and authority to, uh, in his words, Cyrus's words, go and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. It doesn't specifically, by the way, in fact, it probably has nothing, no bearing at all on Cyrus's spiritual condition. Doesn't mean that was the house of his Lord. It just meant it was the house of their Lord at Jerusalem. It's interesting. The Babylonians and uh, uh, the Egyptians, when when they conquered an area, they would pull people out and disperse them everywhere. But when the Persians conquered an area, and even the Greeks following them, they wanted to put them back where they belonged and let them have their, their form of culture because they, what they wanted was a happy, successful area that could pay good taxes. And so Cyrus is doing this because it's what Persians do. It's not to be missed, however, that 70 or 100, several hundred, several years before, I, I'm sorry, I can't give you an exact time. You read in the book of Jeremiah, it was prophesied that this man, Cyrus, would be God's servant to do this. So he thinks he's doing it because he's a Persian. He's really doing it because God's told him to. There's, there's probably a message in that. We think about... They've gone, they have authority, they have some goods, but they're really rather pitiful. Because not all that many of them went. And when they got there, what they found was rubbish and piles of dilapidation and trash and a city in disrepair and walls that were tore down in a temple that didn't exist and surrounded by enemies. And uh, if you read Ezra chapter 2 and 3, uh, within seven months of getting there, they put the altar back in place and started doing burnt offerings because they were terrified of those people around them. And they were looking for some of God's grace and protection. And so they're kind of pitiful. But they're in God's will. After, after they've entered Jerusalem, they, they've got Zerubbabel and they've got Joshua the priest leading the way. One is a governor, one's a priest. So you have the civic and the religious. They build the altar. They start burning sacrifices. They, they lay the foundation for the temple. There's about two years in. Things are beginning to take shape. That's where we pick up our reading. Because as those things are taking shape, the adversaries begin to take note. And opposition becomes legitimate. With that stated, and in light of those statements, I believe this is correlation for us. Would you stand with me in honor of God's Word? We're going to read a little bit of chapter 4 and... I'll direct you as the Lord has directed me. By the way, there's a pattern. And if you'll ask God to open your spiritual eyes this morning, you'll see this pattern is evident in society today. And if you really ask God to look into your heart this morning, you'll see that this pattern is evident in your own spiritual life. Which is insulting, but true. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, by the way, if you'd like to write right there, adversaries, you can write Samaritans right there and do just as good. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple of the Lord God of Israel. Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezrahaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua... 
Joshua, and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land, that's the adversaries mentioned in verse 1, weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of King Cyrus of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Let's pray and I'll share with you a little bit about this passage. Father, we pray, Lord, as we look into this passage for clarity. Lord, we pray for illumination. Father, we know that the blessed Holy Spirit is here. We uh, don't request His presence. We request his liberty to move among our hearts, to challenge, convict, convert where necessary. Lord, to open our eyes so that we might see. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let you have a seat. I, I want to clarify something for a moment. Ezra is a prophet and prophets sometimes uh, mash events together. And in this chapter, there is more than one event. There is the event of building the tabernacle. There is also the event, or excuse me, the temple. There is also the event of building the wall. And Ezra has kind of mashed them together. It's okay, though, because it's all the work of God. And our goal this morning is to understand, understand Satan or the world or the flesh. You pick your poison we're, our goal is to understand the strategy against the work of God because it's redundant and we see it here. We've seen it throughout history. You've experienced it in your life. And if you look at the big picture today, you're seeing it active. And so the first thing that we note is as they are beginning to get things going, the foundation is taking shape. It looks as if they're going to be able to accomplish the goal, which is to build the house of the Lord. Notice the first thing uh, that they come to them and they say, let us build with you. Step number one, every time you can write it down, Satan or the world or the flesh, the first attempt is going to be to compromise the work. Now, the question would, would occur, I'm confident of it, well, why couldn't they build with them? Well, I want to tell you. The reason they couldn't build with them is because, at best, they were Samaritans. What is a Samaritan? Well, if you go to the book of Daniel, you'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar came uh, on Jerusalem three different times. Not only there, you can also see this in the latter portion of 2 Kings. Uh, he came on them three different times. He would come, uh, he would invade, he would take some wealth and some people, and he would install his own king, and he would say, be good. And that king would not be good. By the way, that's what Jeremiah was trying to get them to do, was he's trying to get them to be good. He was saying to them, surrender under the yoke of bondage. We've got to do 70 years. The sooner we get started, the better off we're going to be. So Nebuchadnezzar would install a king, he would go away. The king would act up again. Nebuchadnezzar come again. On the third visit, he crushed them. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed the king's palace. He took all of the wealth. He took all of the intelligence uh, and the, the, the wealthy, the nobles. And he left a few poor folk scattered out. In fact, his captain took those poor people and put them in charge of areas that they never would have been in charge of before. And he left them there. Well, as is normal for Nebuchadnezzar, for the Babylonians, as they conquered other peoples, they would bring those peoples and put them in that area. Because that's what they do. Well, those Jews that remained and those conquered people that came, intermingled, married, there you have the Samaritans. 
So what's the problem with the Samaritan? If you remember in John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ was, was going and he decided he had to go through Samaria. And he met a woman at the well. There's a conversation that ensues between those two people that tells you everything that's wrong with the Samaritans. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans, that's true. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews, that was true as well. Uh, you remember, uh, she said, that woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's what she said to Christ. And she said, we worship in this mountain, and you worship in that mountain. This is what the Lord said to her. He said, uh, there's coming a time, and now is, where it won't matter which mountain you worship in. Uh, furthermore, you don't know what you worship. We know, because salvation of the Jew is of the Jews. But, there's coming a time when, or you'll say, if you're going to worship God, you have to worship God in spirit and truth. This is the problem. Samaritans were all spirit, all emotion, no doctrine. Pharisees were all doctrine, no spirit. Christ was saying, you're not right, neither are they right. The right thing is spirit and truth. Okay, so what we understand about these people is they're Samaritans. They're polytheistic, idolatrous heathens. That's what they are. Can I tell you this? It's the same world we live in. We live in a world of polytheistic, idolatrous heathens. You know what's even more insulting? Is there's several in the family of God that are at a minimum idolatrous and possibly polytheistic. Can I tell you what's even more insulting? You probably are idolatrous. The Lord just hasn't revealed it to you yet. Because you failed to look at it. At any rate. <laughs> we'll leave the personal insults for later. Uh, at any rate. Uh, they come to, to, together and they say. Let us help. They said no you can't help. We're different. When, what we see here is this seek to compromise the work. This is how someone seeks to compromise the work. First, there's this idea of suggested inclusivity. Let us participate. We, oh, you know what? A, a temple? Oh, it's a great idea. I know. Let's build it right in the middle of town. Let's make it beautiful. Let's make it really peaceful and serene. Then everybody could come there and we'll, we'll make it easily accessible. It'll be for everybody. It'll be a really beautiful spot. See, because that's what you would hear today. But they wanted to build the house of the Lord. The Lord. Jehovah God. Exclusive. Not only was there a suggestive inclusivity, there was this shared identity. Notice right there, they say, uh, for we seek your God. We're the same as you, man. Where have you guys been? Lord, we've been here forever. We didn't think there was any of us left. We're just like you. We love gods. We seek your God. Shared identity. And then look at the, I love this next statement. Man, we've been sacrificing to him. Ever since the king brought us here, we've been sacrificing to him. Where were you guys at when we were sacrificing to him? We, we've already got an investment. It's secretive. It's exclusive. But we've invested already. Let, let us help you. And, and listen to me. It's the same thing that occurs today. If, if we rip the sign down in front of this church. And we put up some. I don't know. Uh, I have several pop in my mind. And I don't want to say them because people use them. And I don't want to insult anybody. But you know. Uh, we just put up a sign that says Church. Uh, church for all, church for everyone. Uh, just, just come worship. 
And we removed all exclusivity. Get, get rid of the crosses because that identifies who we are. Don't talk about this without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sin. Don't, don't stick to one Bible. You know, we got to look at other things too. Let's bring in some modern commentary and, and, and let's just open the floor so everybody feels comfortable. You couldn't build a large enough facility here. You'd have to build bunches of them. You know, all over the place. But when we seek to be true, when we rebuke the compromise, look at verse 4. This is the next thing that happens. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. It's maybe, maybe a little difficult to comprehend that statement on its own. But when we incorporate the book of Nehemiah, it's very easy to, to open that statement up. Because the leopard doesn't change his spots. And the way they reacted in Nehemiah to the building of the wall, I can assure you they reacted the same way to the building of the temple. And, and, and some of the, when you look in the original, the idea of the language there is discourage and make afraid. Some versions even use those particular words. And, and they would look to discourage or instill fear. Well, somebody would say, well, how do they do that? Well, turn with me real quick to Nehemiah. It's just the next book over. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4. You've read this before. I just don't know that you connected the two, but I want you to see how they work. Because I believe when you see this, you'll identify it with today. Nehemiah chapter 4. In verse 1, it says, But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we built the wall, he was wroth, took great indignation, and mocked the Jews. Do you see that? Louis says, verse 2, this is what he would say. What do these feeble Jews, will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are burned? Look what his buddy Tobiah said in verse 3. Even if they build, if a fox go up, it shall break it down. Look at verse 8. And they conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem and hinder it. Look at verse 11. Uh, and our adversary said, they shall know, they shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst of them and slay them and cause the work to cease. Do you see that? This is how they slander and criticize the work. They do it with taunts of inadequacy, threats of insufficiency, terror of failure. They would say to them, you can't build that because whatever you build, it's not going to be sufficient. It's going to fall down. It's going to tumble over. I look, you, you go ahead and build it. You're not going to know it, but we're going to come among you and knock it down. And we're going to kill you. We're going to threaten you. We're going to burn it. I also believe that they probably, uh, when he talks about mocking them, they, they probably taunted them about the size and scope of the structure. Because in Haggai chapter 2, he prophesies to them directly and says to them, Listen, don't worry about how this compares to the other temple. The Lord is going to fill it with glory. You just build it. I believe that was coming from them other folks. It's puny. Tiny. Oh, you going to build that little church over there? It's not big enough. It won't do what you want to do. It won't accomplish it. It's, it's that idea to slander and criticize the work. That's how Satan and the world system and the flesh work. The, the way of the world is to trust the of man, the flesh, or finances, or size of the structure, or grandeur. That's the way of the work. To doubt 
the things of the Spirit. To have unrealistic beliefs in the power of man and money. Satan comes along and he conflates the truth with deceit and, and uh, uh, falsehood. And, and, and he makes things inverted. And what does it do? It, it dampens the Spirit. And when they can't slander and criticize enough, look at verse 5. They, they don't stop. <laughs> and by the way, the world doesn't stop and Satan doesn't stop. Look at verse 5. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of King Cyrus until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That, that's a period of time, about 16 years, but... More importantly, there were one or two kings between those guys. I mean, there was a period of time where they completely stopped it. The, the idea is to suspend and corrupt the work. I was reading this and I thought, well, what, what does that mean? They hired counselors against them. And uh, uh, I, have some, I have some of my own supposition that I think is probably pretty accurate, but we also have a passage of Scripture we'll read in just a moment. But at a local level, they would, they would bribe people to work against the flow of work, whether it be in, in ideas or in uh, uh, the methodologies of accomplishing it, or, you know, if there were, no, you can't build that there, that's my property, and you find out it's not there, you know, that kind of thing, they... To slow the work at, a, at what would be like a state or a national level for us. They had counselors at the throne of the king there in Susa to argue daily against the work that was happening. To keep the king in an uproar the whole time. So that even if he really didn't have a problem with the work, just to get some peace and quiet, he would stop the work. So that's, that's one way. Turn, turn again. I know you, you don't like doing this. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter 5. I could have had you just stay there, I suppose. Uh, Nehemiah, excuse me, chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now this is after the wall is complete. <laughs> uh, look at chapter 6, verse 6. Wherein uh, was written. So Sanballat has sent a letter to Nehemiah. Thou hast, thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words, and hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying there's a king in Judah, and now it shall be reported to, our, to the king according to these words. See, that's a, that's a counselor. But he said to him, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell king this. And he's going to come get you. It's childish, isn't it? But it goes on all the time. Look, look down a couple of verses. Of course, if you look at verse 8, uh, Nehemiah says to him, There are no such things done as thou sayest. You've made them up in your own heart. Nehemiah was pretty good at resisting. They tried to get him to come out and have a meeting. He said, Why would I come meet you? I'm doing a great work. I love that. Uh, nobody ever invites me to go to a meeting. But if they do, I'm going to say that one day. Uh, look at verse 10 afterward this is Nehemiah I came into the house of Shemaiah the son of Delilah the son of Mehetabil uh, pardon my pronunciation there and, and he said let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple for they will come to slay thee yea in the night they will come to slay thee you see that that's supposedly a prophet Speaking to Nehemiah, saying, they're coming to get you. We better go lock ourselves in the temple. Well, if they were coming to get him, it'd be convenient to know where he's at, wouldn't it? Look at verse 11 and Nehemiah's response. Uh, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I'll not go in. And lo, I perceive that God has not sent him. I'm pretty sure this message is not from God. 
So they, they, they want to compromise the work. They can't. They slander and criticize the work. They suspend and corrupt the work. They, they try to get in the middle of it. They try to work against it. I was telling somebody earlier, and I don't, look, I don't say any of this stuff for you to feel sorry for me or, or to pity me. Uh, it wouldn't help anyway, and that's not what this is about. Uh, but, you know, when I first surrendered to preach, I was 31. I was mature. I was old, you know, to be just surrendering to preach. Uh, there were people in my life that, that I loved and trusted that said to me stuff like this, you sure you want to do that? You know what that means? I mean, if, if you publicly tell everybody this has happened, you can't ever back out of it. If you do, you'll be a failure. Is that encouraging or what? I mean, it was very uplifting. <laughs> you know what that was? That was a counselor sent to me by Satan. Not a satanic person, not a demonic person, not a bad person. Just somebody with the wrong read that Satan used to speak wrong into my life. There, there was another one. Uh, and he was, he was actually a missionary. He was a full-time vocational missionary. Had been for 20 some odd years. Had served in the islands somewhere and was currently on staff with a large mission board, was an active member of the church I was in. And I, I wouldn't say I idolized him, but I did think a lot of him. I, I thought, you know, I mean, he was, he was a great preacher. And uh, so, I mean, he mattered. This is what he said to me. Don't sell your shop. No matter what you do, don't sell your shop. Just the world needs bivocational preachers. Just keep, don't ever sell your shop. Look at me. Listen to me. Don't sell your shop. Can I, can I share something with you from the bottom of my heart right now and you not judge me too harshly? If I wouldn't have sold my shop, do you know where I'd be today? I'd be sitting on the beach somewhere enjoying the benefits of owning that shop. Because the choice that I made has been hard. It's been hard. The shop wasn't hard. <laughs> it was a counselor. Chances are, if I wouldn't have sold the shop or had a mind to sell the shop or shut it down, it didn't matter to me, and, and I got a witness right there. Uh, he'll tell you when the time come, I said, shut it down, sell it, give it away. I don't care. I need to go. And... I did care because there was finances involved, but I needed to go. But if, if I would have not had that mind, I probably would not have com completed Bible college. I probably would not have ever pastored a church, or it would have been insignificant, and when it got difficult, I would have just went back to the shop. That was a counselor. You say, well, I'm not exactly sure how this applies to me. Well, those same counselors are working in your life. They're speaking to you all the time. In verse 6, we have the final ploy. Verse 6 describes a situation where they write a letter. And the contents of the letter are defined starting in verse 11. And I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read some highlights. I would encourage you to read it later. And verse 11 says, this is a copy of the letter. Verse 12 says, be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee are come up to Jerusalem, building the rebellious and bad city. And have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundation. Be it known now unto the king that if this city be builded and these walls set up again, then thou, they will not pay toll, tribute, and custom, and thou shalt endamage the revenue of the king. Then in verse 15 it says, uh, listen, you should go search the book, the history book, and see what kind of people you're dealing with. 
So when they, when they can't compromise and, and the criticism doesn't work and the corruption doesn't work, then the idea is to stop or cancel the work. Just end it. No matter what we have to do, quit, squish the work, put an end to it. And their way of doing that was to write that letter. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. Then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So somewhere along the line, it stopped it. It put an end to it. And how did they do that? Well, uh, first, deceitful reporting. And that would be, uh, on a personal level, I'm talking about your reputation. They just told lies about them. I mean, this rebellious and bad city. <laughs> Full of these poor people with these broken down walls and these burnt houses. <laughs> uh, and then when that didn't work, they, they, they looked at history, but they misappropriated it. Because you know what the kings would have found if they would have looked into history? It would depend on how far they looked. But if they looked far enough, they would have seen a nation that come to fruition under King Saul. They would see a nation that came to victory and unification under King David. They would see a nation that prospered so under King Solomon that it was the head of all nations. And then they would see a gradual decline that was full of ebb and flow of good kings and bad kings, good choices and bad choices that ended with the last several generations of kings who couldn't keep their word and couldn't protect their city and constantly made bad deals with bad people and broke them. That's what they would have seen. But these people that were there now have been in captivity for 70 years. Likely, a lot of them were born in captivity. They have no recollection at all of David's kingdom or Solomon's kingdom. Indeed, what they know is Cyrus, the king of Persia, said we could do this. They're, they've misappropriated that history, they come up with all of these hyperbolic suppositions, melodrama, this overt claims of what they'll do if they're allowed to continue. A couple more stories, I'll be done. About 24 years ago, 25 years ago, Macedonia World Baptist Missions bought this property over here on 332. If you go up here and hang a left at the Publix, you'll see it. Macedonia World Baptist Missions. Macedonia World Baptist Missions is a mission board that sends missionaries all over the world. It was founded under the ministry of Gwinnett Hall Baptist Church by Dr. Marshall Everett. For years, it was in Lawrenceville there in a double-wide, single-wide trailer or some kind of occupation uh, set up like that. The property went commercial. They sold the property. They had enough money. And so they come out here and bought this in the country to build them a little place. Do you know that when they bought that, I lived right there just a couple miles from that. When they bought that property, they put up a sign, Macedonia World Baptist Missions. Do you know what the buzz all around this part of the county was? That's a cult. Wonder what they're going to do there. I heard they're a cult. I've read about them people. I know who they are. You don't know who they are. If you knew who they were, you would know they've been doing what they're going to do for the last 15 years in Lawrenceville. And Lawrenceville didn't think they were a cult. Who, what better neighbor to have than Macedonia World Baptist Missions who keeps their grass cut and their bushes pruned and they're only there five days a week? Hyperbolic. Supposition. A few years ago, I don't know, 15 years or so ago, I was serving on the board of Neighborhood Gospel Missions. And Neighborhood Gospel Missions is a, is a Bible camp for preteens and teenagers that's been in existence for somewhere around 55 years. It was founded by two missionary women, old ladies who'd never been married. Started as a child evangelism ministry, uh, I think CEM. They'd go into schools, and, and then they decided they wanted a Bible camp. And so they started a Bible camp. It was, it was a transit. Uh, it didn't own anything. And sometimes it was in state parks. Sometimes it was in rented facilities. For 50-plus years, Neighborhood Gospel Missions camped 
uh, between 100 and 300 teens and preteens between one to three weeks a year by renting a camp, raising money all year long to pay for it, and take care of those kids. And over those 50-something years, there is absolutely no telling how many missionaries, pastors, preachers, worship leaders, and well-intended Christians come out of that camp. For example, Derek came out of that camp. Not all their credit, but he come out of that camp. My kids grew up in that camp. It's a good camp. We decided we had some money. We had about $450,000. And we decided, the board decided to buy some property. And so they, they found an old Methodist church down in Lexington, Georgia. In the middle of an area called Flatwoods. There's nothing in Flatwoods except for deer and turkey. It's in the middle of nowhere. This church was in the middle of nowhere. It was a rotten little white pasteboard building that was falling apart. And a, a, a dilapidated fellowship hall. An overgrown cemetery on two and a half acres of land on the side of the road. And we bought it. And then we bought the property that attached to it to end up with 35 or 36 acres, something like that. And we started working on it. We put a sign up, Future Home, Neighborhood Gospel Missions, Bible Camp. Immediately, the buzz around that area was that we were a camp for juvenile delinquents. And we were going to bring a bunch of juvenile delinquent teenagers down there. And turn them loose. And they were going to live there. And, and communal style. And we wouldn't be able to control them. It's all of this crazy supposition. There's one guy. One guy. I mean, I know his name. I'm not going to say it because I'm afraid he'll sue me. And that guy made it his mission. He knew nothing about us. In fact, he couldn't even say NGM. He said MGM. I mean, he didn't even know our name. But he made it his mission because of what he believed and he was motivated by Satan, sure as I'm standing here this morning, to put an end to that camp. And he tried and he tried and he tried and one day, a little bit of mud ran off of our camp into his creek and he sued us. Took us to the... Whoever it is that handles erosion control. Cost us $150,000. Do you know where that camp is today? Incomplete. It's incomplete. They haven't even been able to camp for the last two years because they, they can't rent the facility they used to rent. That's two, three hundred kids a year that don't get to sing about Jesus and learn about Jesus and learn about missions. Why? I, it's not hard to apply this at a, at a world level or the national level or the state level. It's going on all the time. If you can't uh, see that in your mind, I could not explain it in two hours, much less an hour. But it's happening. This is what I want you to think about, though, because this is where it settled in on me. Is your personal life. Because remember, in the beginning, these people wanted to help. Let us help you. And what it resulted in was a stop or cancellation of the work. The, the, the picture is of your personal life, is when is the last time that God has moved on you, the Holy Spirit has moved on you, the Lord has moved on you to perform a particular task in the church. And before you say He hasn't, I want you to understand something. I would find that to be disingenuous if you've been in this church for the last five to ten years. I would find it very disingenuous because of the growth we've experienced and the way I know the pulpit has been conducted, if God has not given you a call or a direction to go. So the question is not if, the question is the last time that God spoke to you 
personally about getting involved or doing something hard or doing something bigger than self, what was your inner dialogue? Because that inner dialogue is very well represented in this scripture. Was it one of compromise to do something similar to what I was just asked to do or do something a little less, but still do something? Was it, was it one of, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's too much commitment? Man, I got a lot going on. I'm busy. I, I don't know if I can do that or not. Or, or man, that's too hard for me. I, I'm not, this is too much. Or is, you know, there's not enough talent. I'm not capable did you, maybe this was the decision. Well, yes, that's what I'm going to do, but I'm going to wait until dot, dot, dot. The job slows down. The kids are raised. The summer's over. Retirement. Did you, maybe you look back at the past and you thought, you know, I tried that once before. You know, we were in that other church. Preacher, you don't know about that other church. I was in that church and I made a commitment to that church. Those people walked on me like a rug. You just don't know. No, because I've not served in any other churches. <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you is that's how Satan and the flesh works. It's not how God or the Spirit works. If God... But cause you to something, He will enable you to accomplish it. But it may not be without difficulty. In fact, it's probably going to be in difficulty. If God's going to get honor and glory, He's going to get honor and glory. When, when God challenges you or calls you to do something, it, it won't be something that you can pick an alternative and be as happy with. Well, something with a little less accountability, something with a little less exposure, something with a little less commitment. I mean, what if these guys would have said, you know, we don't need to build a temple. I mean, Lord, the tabernacle was a tent and that worked good for a long time. Let's just get one of those. Do you know... What our country needs, and, and I want to tell you something, it's very hard for me to say this because uh, this is not false humility, by the way, either. This is, this is a recent sense of reality that's come upon me probably in the last four or five years. I, I'm, just, I'm just a guy from, I said to Cula in the early service, I'm just a Gwinnett County boy living in Jackson County. That's all I'll ever be. I'm okay with that. I have no desires to be bigger city or a bigger state or a big, I, I mean, God wouldn't call me to that because I have the, uh, I'm a nine volt and you need to be, you need to be something bigger than that. But do you know what our country needs? See, I know this because I've read history and I've read the scriptures and I see on the stage what, what our country needs is people who are willing to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in exclusivity and in totality, even if it means difficulty. We don't need, we don't need another president. We do, but that's not going to fix the problem. We don't need another Congress. We certainly don't need another form of government. We need some people. The, this, is the, this is the argument, it has been around forever. Most revivals be, begin either literally or figuratively by somebody drawing a circle and getting in the circle and saying, Lord, send a revival to this circle. God set me on fire. That's what we need at a, at a national level, at a country level. It, I don't, I don't, we don't even need super patriots. We need Christians. I'll take a super patriot if he's a Christian. But that's what we need. Well, well, listen, that's what we need there. 
But that's what Georgia needs. That's what Jackson County needs. That's what West Jackson needs. That's what Houston needs. It needs people who will unashamedly serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, all their soul, and all their livelihood, even if it means a personal war. I want to put it one more rung lower. Do you know what Houston Baptist Church needs? My suspicion, God helps. My suspicion is most everybody would say, oh, it doesn't need anything. That'd be my suspicion. Church? Oh, man. Everything's good at church. I mean, we got the finances. We, we you know, I mean, we use bigger sanctuary. We use a couple million dollars, but as, as far as what we need, we don't need anything. We got, I mean, we got Sunday school teachers. We got, man, we hired a youth guy. Got a great choir. Church doesn't need anything. Can, can I tell you that's a lie from Satan? You know, we don't we don't stand up and poor mouth all the time. I got news for you. I'm not built that way. If I was the only one in this whole facility doing anything, I would not pour mouth. Because I serve a great God. We don't pour mouth, but the church needs things. The church needs men and women, young and old, who would devotedly and distinctively serve the Lord Jesus Christ with their whole person in life, even if it means loneliness and sacrifice, even if it means discomfort and fear. That's what the church needs. The church doesn't need a youth pastor. It needs a youth pastor and five people behind him wanting his job. It doesn't need a Sunday school director. It needs a Sunday school director and three or four people behind him wanting his job. It doesn't need an occasional Sunday school teacher. It needs every class full, an assistant in every class, and a waiting list wanting to serve God with the particular gift and ability they've been given. The church needs somebody to commit to it. You know the last thing the church needs? The absolute last thing, this one or any other one, is more clientele and patrons. We don't need that. We don't have enough chairs for the clientele and patrons we have. We need somebody to say, you know what? That's my ministry. I'm going to do it. Irrespective of what the voice in my head says, of what the world says, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to compromise on it. I'm going to do it. Would you stand with me this morning? Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. The question this morning is this. Knowing the work of God that needs to be completed. Will you compromise Will you concede or will you continue? Only one person can answer that question this morning. Father, I pray you'd bless this time of invitation. Father, I pray that we'd be moved to be committed. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.